0: Welcome to the podcast series, Creating Diverse Worlds, Speculative Fiction. I'm your host, Yoshita Shavasav. I'm the Literature Collective Associate at Belong. Speculative fiction is an umbrella term covering fantasy, science fiction, dystopia, and everything in between. Speculative fiction has a vibrant and radical tradition of stories that can make us think, can critique society, and can show us how it could be otherwise, for better or worse. As writers from marginalized communities occupy space in the literary landscape, These genres aid in alternate world-building. Sometimes they might work to reinvent world order or hold up a mirror to the evils of our reality. In this podcast series, we will speak to authors who have tugged at the horizons of our imagination and focused this chance to create their own inclusive worlds. Our guest for today is Usman T. Malik. Usman T. Malik is a Pakistani-American writer and doctor. His fiction has been reprinted in several years' best anthologies, including the best American science fiction and fantasy fiction, and has been nominated for the World Fantasy Award, the Million Writers Award, and twice for the Nebula. He has won the Bram Stoker and British Fantasy Awards. He's a co founder of the Salam Award for Imaginative Fiction, which seeks to nurture science fiction writers of Pakistani origin. Usman's debut collection, Midnight Doorways Fable from Pakistan was released in 2021 to great critical acclaim. I just wanted to check, I don't think it's available in India yet, right? No, but the
1: good news is it will be soon. Yeah. So, Hachette, Hachette India is putting out an edition. It should be out by mid-2022.
0: So, yeah, I'll start this um, episode with a question that I've been asking <laughs> on each episode with like all the writers a really broad question about what you define as speculative fiction because it's really an umbrella term. It's a really um, new term in general as a genre. And it covers so much. It covers fantasy, science fiction, dystopia, horror, and everything in between. So how would you describe speculative fiction? And on a similar set of thought, are there elements of SFF in all fiction itself? Or what would you then in- exclude from this umbrella term?
1: so <clears throat> speculative fiction you know is a, like you said a relatively recent term but and the genre of science fiction itself is actually a very modern genre if you think about it in terms of its definition and its delimitation if i'm not uh, mistaken uh, the term science fiction only started being used in the 19, 1930s i think or from 1940s and it's really a western uh, Label on a genre that has obviously existed for thousands of years, so it's just an imposition. It's another colonial imposition, if you will, or at least imperialistic um, imposition, if you will. Um, so, you know, um, <clears throat> I, I when we talk about the idea of science fiction, what it is, what the genre is, again, keeping in mind that it's a uh, an imposition from an outs uh, from on our if we are to define it, then it would be an imposition from a Western culture. A, B, um, it's a marketing term, right? All genres are marketing. Uh, when we la- label a general uh, genre, we label it so because it's a marketing. It's a way of marketing things to audience. Um, so speculative fiction or science fiction for me has always been about. Um, about thought experiments, about a literature that really focuses or at least yearns for a sense of wonder or a sense of awe. Um, and um, I I recently wrote the afterword for Hachette India's edition of Midnight is my book, my collection that's uh, hopefully coming out in India this year. Um, and, you know, in the afterword, I was, I was again brooding on this question and I said that um, if realist literature looks for the extraordinary in the ordinary, science fiction or wonder tales look for the ordinary in the extraordinary, and so that's what I usually think about when I think about science fiction or speculative fiction
0: yeah thats that's a great line um and that does uh, make a lot of sense and does um like spark a lot of thought, <laughs> but um. Going forward, um, as you mentioned, speculative fiction is a much more Western, imperialistic concept. And um, in an interview for the Lahore Literature Festival, you point out that Pakistani short stories have largely been in the arena of realism. I think similar for Indian literary tradition as well, progressive writers group and everything has always been more direct social commentary in general although like i believe speculative fiction as a label m- might be western or imperialistic or something pretty decent but it's not like we didn't have fantastical stories or mystical beings in our context like we di- we did have them um, since a pretty long time you use you, you only use the uh, imagery of the jinn in multiple stories can you tell us a little bit more about the history of speculative fiction or like um, not the label in but in general like in that tradition of liter, like in that literary tradition if you have any um old pakistan writers or uh, a tradition of that kind of uh, fantastical writing in pakistan literature sure
1: so you know <clears throat> uh so um there are two uh prongs to this answer the first one is you know um um Ellen Kushner, who's a very well-known fantasy writer um, and used to be uh, um, an editor of science fiction and fantasy in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, Ellen Kushner once commented about this. You know that people often talk about the fact that uh, science fiction or speculative fiction is as old as the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? We say that uh, uh, in the Babylonian times mm-hmm. or or in the Syrian times, you know, we have stories going that far back to the I'm sorry, not Syrian, but Sumerian times. We have an epic of Gilgamesh, which is a fantasy epic. But, you yeah. know, the thing about that is to people who lived in those times, people who told this, this story or these legends, often they believed them. So we can't say a story, we can't say uh, prophetic stories in the Quran or miracle stories in, um, in any religious text or the Mahabharata are fantasy epics. I'm not sure that that would really be true. Because I think there is the the line between reality and uh, supra-reality in those lines, um, uh, preternaturalism, uh, were not as well defined as they are today. So people believed them. And even in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and South Asia in general, we still have people who believe in magic and perform magic all day long. So, um, you know, so that's one prong. We have to keep that in mind that when we talk about literature that may be speculative from our part of the world, uh, was it speculative in its inception or is it speculative to us now? So that was one thing I wanted to kind of you just have our uh, listeners keep in mind. Um, The second aspect would be, of course, we have a great tradition of uh, Wonder Tales um, and Fantastica um, uh, in the Indo-Pakistan uh, and, and I shouldn't say pakistan the South Asian uh, subcontinent uh, as well as all over the world uh, you know uh, I, I don't know how many people know this but the Arabian Nights that great example of wonderful wonderful stories there are scholarly um, uh, 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 pieces on this and there is plenty of evidence that the Arabian Nights was probably inspired and even um, uh, t- took its shape from a great uh, old Indian epic with stories within stories and I'm forgetting, uh, I think it's called the Sea of Stories or something like that. Um, I'm forgetting the the uh, Urdu slash Hindi term for it. But um, the Arabian Nights took its shape from the Indo-Pakistan subcontinent um, as, as its own origin. So wonder tales are very old. And um, if we call, we, we discard speculative fiction and go back to Fantastica or Fantastic Tales, we've had a huge history. And so, I mean, we can start counting and we would be sitting here all day just counting all our old epics. You take, you you know, you keep in mind um, uh, uh, Indo-Pakistan only, then you have Central Asian influences, then you have uh, uh, Bengali influences, then you have Nepali stories, then you have, you know, all this area was rich with folklore and tradition. I don't think we could ever be done counting them. Um, If we talk about the history of speculative fiction from South Asia as a modern phenomenon, well, then we we can go back to uh, Rukaiya Sahabat Hussain, Begum Rukaiya, who wrote uh, Sultana's Dream, which is now held up as a a great example of feminist science fiction, Uh, 1910, I believe, I want to say, is when it was written. And then we can move all the way up to today. Um, As you pointed out, progressive writers in both India and Pakistan, the circle of the progressive writers um, they focused on social reality and realism. And um, I, I, while I have read a little bit about them, I'm not, um, I'm not familiar with them enough to make this bold claim um, with confidence. But I do suspect that a lot of these writers were inspired by people like Hemingway, by Chekhov, um, by by the by the by the modern realists in the Western world. And then they pulled these techniques from those people and they brought them over here. Um, so I think that the Progressive Writers Circle and you know, following from them, a huge chunk of Urdu and I'm sure Hindi literature maybe as well, has had a lot of realist um, component to it. In Pakistan, for sure, realism has dominated the Afsana, the short story for the last uh, several decades.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for pointing that out. I hadn't thought of it that way, that the um, the fable, um, like the legends of that time were truly true, true to them. It was not really speculative for them. That's a great point. Um, yeah, and, and for sure, I think realism um, across South Asia has dominated to a great extent because of its import from modernist American um, literary traditions and also because of all the social and political strife of that era. Uh, but um, in in like following the thread of thought about South Asian fiction in general, you've also contributed to the latest volume of the Volanza book of South Asian science fiction. South Asia can be a little tricky term because, because I believe As a label, it can be a little reductive for a region that has so much cultural and regional diversity, as you pointed out, to be reduced to just one bigger umbrella term, South Asia. But I'm still curious if you see any common trends or features of a South Asian literary SFF tradition, similar to cultural literary genres, such as Afrofuturism or Silpunk. How would one then define the features of this label, South Asian SFF?
1: So, you know, the person who would give you the best answer for this is probably someone like Tarun Saint, who uh, who is a true scholar, and Anil Menon probably would be a wonderful person to ask this question to. Um, I, I don't consider myself critically proficient enough to really give you an exhaustive answer. But, you know, again, the first thing we got to think about is when we say South Asian, what do, what do we mean, like you said? Um, so Pakistan, Sri Lanka, um, Bangladesh, uh, India... Um, So, and uh, so then we talk about India, well, India is not one country, Pakistan is not one country, Uh, Bangladesh is probably not one country, Um, and Sri Lanka probably isn't one country, right? I mean, you've got demographic, you've got marginalized people, you've got regional areas, you know, uh, Ahtizaz Aysen, the Pakistani politician uh, who used to, um, who was in government um, many years ago, um, he... He wrote a book called The Indus Saga when he was in prison. And I'm forgetting which government he was in prison under. But um, in The Indus Saga, uh, Atizaz Aysen made the argument of the fact that... Uh, you, well, you know, we all know that the word in, uh, India comes from Indus. And the, uh, one in the one of the great ironies of history, the Indus is in Pakistan now. Right? <laughs> one of the great ironies of history. So India is basically... In the Indus area, if we are to call India India, that would be Pakistan. So every Pakistani is Indian by default. It cannot be otherwise, um, and people don't want to hear these things in our political circles. But it is true. So you know that is the word India comes from Indus. Yeah, it is the Indus Valley area. Uh, you know that was the first line of defense for the Greater India area when Central Asians used to invade us. So you know who's Pakistan or who's India or who's Bangladesh, right? I mean mm-hmm. so. When we talk about that, we talk about Balochistan, we've got Kashmir, we've got uh, NWFP, which is now called Khyber Pakhtunkha, then we've got the uh, Southern India, then we've got, you know, Bang- uh, Bengali science fiction. So mm-hmm. where do we go and how do we tie them together? I think what ties us together more than anything else is probably colonialism, actually, <laughs> more than anything else. You know, it is yeah. the political division caused by colonialism that binds us together today more than anything else. Um, <clears throat> So that is something to, I, I guess, ponder when we talk about South Asian. And then even in, you know, I'm from Lahore, right? So a mm. lot of my stories are set in Lahore. The other mm. day, I live in this posh area in Lahore. I live in this nice um, upscale area in Lahore. And I'm sitting on my, in my nice house um, in my clinic and I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. And then I go out on the street. And yesterday I was, I was passing through this really congested area of town. And I was really annoyed by traffic, as we all are. And I was I caught myself thinking, "I am not telling these people's story stories. Yeah. I can't. I, I can only tell my own story. I these people have to tell their own stories. I can observe and I can report, but that would be my story. That would never be their story, so I can't claim to represent them. So similarly, South Asian science fiction, no region, not even South Asia itself can claim that this you know technically that we represent anything because it is the individual people's individual stories. So that is something I've been thinking about recently a lot in terms of whose stories we tell. We only tell our own stories. We don't tell anyone else's stories. Um, so again, colonialism ties us together. Partition ties us together. The trauma of partition ties us together like no other trauma. Um, no matter what, which, say, which way we lean on, a way, on the question of partition, the fact that it happened was a great rupture um, in identities and in a lot of other ways. Partition ties us together. Uh, Poverty ties us together. This rapidly escalating divide between the rich and the poor, climate change, these things now tie us together more than anything else rather than a speculative tradition in my opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, I agree a lot with the fact that we can't tell everyone's stories and in general, I don't think even just staying in the same country or even in the same state or even in the same region doesn't really... uh, ensure that everybody's having the same experience i guess that that is a pretty great point <laughs> you can only tell your own stories um but in <laughs> this is a question that i thought of um that i was thinking about when you talked about telling your own stories and in general i wanted to know if uh like about stereotypes in in thinking of you you write kind of in both traditions and you have also lived in america um, so, do you have any? Like, a lot of people have a lot of issues with um, how exoticized the South Asian continent is in Western literary tradition, and I'm not very sure about how speculative fiction, you know, presents South Asia. So Have you like read um, like speculative fiction of white authors where you think that the representation was not well, or are you like tired of any tropes or stereotypes? So,
1: you know, it's the question always comes down to, you know, well, I mean, for me, I think the, the natural segue from this question would be the next question of appropriation, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be the next segue. And and it would segue into that. And you know, I think about that, and I have I I am I am a moderate when it comes to those sort of ideas. I mean I'm generally a moderate in terms of how I think about how we should handle most of our problems. But um, one thing that I think about often is I've never had an issue with a white person writing a brown country, a story set in a brown country or writing brown characters or black characters or whatever. And similarly, I I don't expect as a brown person to be questioned about the white experience or the black, because, you know, any writer, I I come back to this point again and again, it is if you are being forced If you are forcing yourself or if you are pigeonholing yourself in a situation where you end up being called an appropriator, you probably haven't done your job well. You're just not a good writer. Good writers aim for authenticity above most other things. So a good writer is uh, someone who has lived in Delhi for two years and writes about Delhi. Well, sure, It was. it's part of their lived experience now. They should write about Delhi. If someone lives in Lahore and they're a white person, I am not going to ask them not to write about Lahore. But then the question is, a white person sitting in Florida, uh, can they write about Lahore without ever visiting? No. What are you going to write about? You don't freaking know what Lahore is all about. You don't even know what the city smells like. Yeah. You've never been on a train being elbowed by 20 people from a side or, or be sitting in a train and someone comes, say, I'm going to vomit, I'm going to vomit, give me a room. And the person goes and just <laughs> grabs a seat, breaking <laughs> the queue. That way. You know, that's how uh, you can't write about something you don't know. Mm. And so, you know, in writing circles, we often say this the horrible advice, in my opinion, write what you no, know. what you mm. know is boring. You're mm. a freaking account sitting in a, a, you're a banker sitting in a bank, what are you going to write about? Write what you are impassioned by. Because then you will go out and you'll seek answers. You'll seek, you'll be curious about the people that you're going to write about. You'll be curious about your own family if you want to write about them. People write about families because often, or you know, we have this trope in South Asia, of monsoons and weddings, right? Bhangra, monsoon, weddings, People, are, people often talk about how sick they are of this. Well, the reason they are is people are hashing things that happen in their own families all the time. And they have no new at Because you're sitting in these big, rich bungalows and you're talking about these, these. Um, either you'll be writing about a rich, elite circle or, be, or, or you'll be doing poverty porn.
0: Yeah.
1: So you're not between the two. In your, uh, your own experience, your limited experience, in which you have done nothing new, in which you haven't really explored the possibilities, it just becomes boring after a while. In terms of how we... how uh, I, I don't care about tropes as much as what you do with them. Um, um, I, I have written a story called Ishq, which is set in Lahore, and there is a monsoon. But what I, I mean, I never uh, set out to go against a trope or subvert a trope. I just wrote a story that I was excited about. Yeah. So my father told me about this gully, this street, this alley in Lahore, which is called the narrowest alley in Pakistan. Right? I mean, think Mm -hmm. about that. One of the stories, so you hear that and you're like, oh, okay. Living in India and Pakistan, we know all about Pakli gullies, right? About narrow (laughs) alleys. And so that that, itself is not very exciting. But then my dad told me this story. The story was Um, This was in the U.S. I was sitting in Florida and I hadn't visited Lahore in five years. And so my my dad was visiting us and he said, you know, one story. They say that when someone died in that house, in the narrow alley, you couldn't take out the janaza, You couldn't take out the funeral pyre from the house because there was no room. So people would go to the roof and then people would walk 10, 12 roofs before they could lower the janaza or the pier. Or the, uh, or the or the uh, or the with the body on it, uh, to the ground. Now imagine that crossing twelve homes with a dead body that you were holding up on mm-hmm. a charpoy. Yeah. Now that's a story. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want to read about. Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, all know narrow as you see. I mean, you've taken a simple thing like a narrow alley, but it suddenly becomes something different. And so, if someone is not aiming for that sort of interest or that spark. Um, I think that white people who are gonna write stories about Lahore and Lahore, although they, they're gonna say or Delhi, you know, they're gonna say oh the traffic and the and the dust and this and that, but they don't know till they've lived there.
0: Hmm. Agreed, agreed. yeah, that that was a pretty interesting answer, and I think just continuing that, the advice that you were giving or like the thought. Uh, the discussion we were having of writing in general. Um the next question also I think flows in that kind of in that area of expertise about how speculative fiction is defined by its world building aspect and the creation of an alternate universe. And after reading several of your stories, I was intrigued by the combination of scientific facts, cultural images from the US and Pakistan, real life political strife in your stories, like the vaporization enthalpy of a peculiar Pakistani family, the pauper prince, and the eucalyptus gin. Is there a process you follow for your world building, or do you have any advice for aspiring speculative fiction writers to help them build their own worlds?
1: So, the secret to my world building is I don't build any worlds. I, I just take stories and I set them in surroundings I already know. Um, I mean, I have done stories in which are completely alternate, but uh, in a in a where I had to invent the world from scratch, I've done that. I think maybe in one or two stories, but um, mostly I set stories in real locales. And so the question of world building as to how the world operates, uh, 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 you know, someone was saying the other day, someone who read a collection, my collection Midnight Always, they were saying that these are the strangest stories I've ever read. Malik's use of magic realism against ordinary things is just weird and I've never read this before so I basically just take a realist setting um, a realist, well, I mean like, a, the, like the real world, a world that I know quite intimately when I, or used to know quite intimately when I was growing up in Pakistan and I just set my stories there. So for me the question of world building becomes easier and I think that a lot of people can do that. You can take places that you know and superimpose another reality on them in one story that you might not have read, uh, which is in Midnight Always, is the, it's called The Wandering City. And in The Wandering City, it was a story that was published on uh, CSI, Arizona State program called CSI. And the, in the story uh, in Lahore, in, a real, in the real Lahore, a city that wanders all over the world comes and settles smack in the middle of old Lahore it sort of just appears there magically. And one day people wake up and there's this city there, a small city. And so I literally took reality and superimposed another reality on it. I mean, literally, I literalized the metaphor. And um, and then what happens? What happens to people who live in that area? What happened to people who lived in that area? And then you take it from there. And then you take that idea, whatever that idea is, whatever you've done, whatever introduction you have made of this magical element, and then I slowly respond to it. My, my hyper-reality, my hyper-reality of the story, which is the realest element of the story, the people who live in that area, your Chokida, your guard, your family, your, uh, you know, people who, uh, I don't know, your cobbler, your shoemaker, uh, your wala, your uh, Mataiwala, how are they going to respond to a city that lands smack in the middle of Lahore? and that just allows me a jumping board with, from where i start and i just take that idea to, to its logical conclusion so in that story and, I, and i'm sure a lot of our indian listeners know imran khan who former cricketer now prime minister of pakistan he has a prime minister imran khan has a famous line so in that story when when the when this magical city lands smack in the middle of lahore uh, and you know the army shows up and then there are these vendors and shopkeepers and and then the first thing Imran Khan says on air is, Gabrana hai. <laughs> yeah. That's the first thing he says. So that line mm. for Pakistanis is a political joke. It's a meme. Mm. Right? Yeah. And so you take that reality and you respond to it as, you take that magical imagery and your hyper-reality responds to it. That's how I build my worlds.
0: Hmm. But I feel like in horror and like weird and uncanny, it's a lot more terrifying to... Um, to read stories that are closer to your reality like, personally I would be a lot more scared uh, of, yes like, you are
1: absolutely correct the best horror that I've noticed almost always is set in the real world It's yeah. in all, alternate world horror you can do it but for some reason even as a kid it didn't work for me as well as horror set in the real world does Hmm.
0: exactly because then like you go to sleep and then you can imagine that like some thing is crawling up your walls so you or, know the funny bite-
1: That is Freud has an essay on that. Hmm. So Freud wrote an essay called the uncanny. Hmm. And the German word for which I can't remember now, the German word for uncanny has roots both in the familiar and the unfamiliar. The word, the German word for uncanny is the same word for home. Oh. So if and then, if you, another shade of meaning of that German word means exactly the opposite, something you don't know. So horror, true horror, is the inversion of the familiar. Hmm. That is when people get this uncanny feeling and that is when dread works best. When something you always know, I don't know how many of you or your listeners, I don't know if you ever had that dream, but as a child, and my, I know my own kids, have had this dream in which they wake up and uh, there's something scary in the house. So they run, run to their mom and hmm. the mom has a blank face or the mom is a monster. Then hmm. they run to their mom to their dad and the dad is a monster. He take, pulls off his mask and there's a monster there. So it's a very common dream. I had it as I uh, when I was a kid. There is There are actual animes about it and my sons yeah. had this. as well. So true horror is the defamiliarizing of the familiar. When something is already in the house, the house Mm. was already haunted, you just never knew it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think I've also had that dream. I've also seen it like in a lot of films and like cultural media of of depiction of that dream. I guess we're talking about horror and the uncanny. I know that your stories do fall under like horror, dark fantasy, uncanny. And as a genre, it has been used to signify human fears or societal anxieties. even with your stories you touch upon the horrors of the real world, societal injustices, and repercussions of the climate crisis. Why did you choose to set your stories in an alternate, darker world than a more realistic depiction? And in general, why do you think horror or the uncanny provide fertile ground for for societal commentary or social commentary about injustices?
1: <clears throat> so, you know, uh, there are honestly um, on every panel in at horror conventions, you know, this question comes up horror as, yeah. a lens, as a lens to look at society through. And so, you know, for us people who live and breathe in the world of horror craft, so to speak, or horror literature, so to speak, we've talked about this uh, at length. Um, there are many, many answers to that. Um, I'll give you one, answer, but I've often found that my answers differ. Uh, my answers depend on what I've recently been thinking about or read, and I hmm. use that thought to you to guide my answers to such questions. So recently, you know, a friend of mine um, at a panel at the at the WorldCon in DC, someone mentioned uh, Douglas E. Winters. Uh, famous quote. There is this famous quote that has sort of become been bouncing around in the horror community for a long time. It's from Douglas E. Winter's introduction to his anthology *Prime Evil*. The anthology was published in 1990, and in that, uh, Winter uh, says something to the effect of, "Horror is not a genre; it is an emotion." And so if your horror is not a genre and it's emotion, well, then it makes sense that it can pretty much permeate any branch of art or literature. And I think it's true. I do think it is true. I mean, horror is, um, Winter writes in a very simple way, which is why I think it's so popular. It's so easy to kind of quote again and again. But horror is, at the uh, end of the day, a, a visceral response of some sort, right? And so when any society goes through tumultuous times of any sort. Yeah, there, there is actually, uh, I, 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 I want to say it was in communist, I want to say it was in communist Russia, but there was this article that I recently read in which uh, this, this person who had studied the dreams of people and the literature from that time, he not, that, that person noticed, they noticed that in an authoritarian regime, the dreams of the citizens changed. Mean hmm. think about that. That's such an interesting thing. People were dreaming differently under an authoritarian regime. Hmm. The way they, act, their, their, dreaming brain changed, and so that's how deeply and how subconscious this fear, fear of insecurity or threat to survival or you know suppression can or oppression can go. So absolutely, um, anytime time there's tumult in society, horror writing or horror books become popular. Or um, literature that uh, deals with that sort of a trauma becomes popular and people start identifying with it more.
0: I was also thinking about examples that I could, and like I remember from my class of like watching Nosferatu and about how it was, there was a lot of like tones of Weimar Republic and the Nazi Germany coming about. And it's pretty interesting how like literature and reality and like dreams and all our thoughts kind of jump off from each other. Um, And horror really plays a really interesting part in all of this. And while reading your stories, I was thinking about in your fantastical stories, you use several supernatural beings, the being an example I mentioned earlier as well. But the legacy of the depiction of supernatural has been really connected to the depiction of other communities. There is, of course, the gender depiction of witches and sirens subjugate women who went against patriarchal norms, a shorthand in literature and films and in a lot of media to depict evil is to give the character a physical or mental disability. How do you grapple with this legacy that horror and like supernatural and fantastical i think literature has and do you think we are seeing a change in this kind of commentary in the contemporary works? So <clears throat> Fear of the other has
1: been, it's been a major theme of horror for the longest time. Historically speaking or evolutionarily speaking, I think, you know, it's not surprising, right? I mean, um, if you were part of a tribe living in in, in, the, in the forest or in the jungle, there was threat coming from outside, you would have fear of the other. You would have fear of the dark. You would have um, a fear of an attack by uh, people that you only remotely know or don't even know at all. And so foreign, it was a threat to people's survival. But as the world changes, so do the norms of um, art and the way we approach that change as they should. Nothing is ever stagnant or static. Um, So people with, as a medical doctor, I know that people with disabilities or people with disease evoke a visceral response in uh, seemingly healthy people. And the reason why kids bully someone with disability or why healthy people in a hospital kind of move away from someone who's sick is because it's a reminder of mortality.
0: Yeah.
1: I think there there are two things, right? There's fear of catching that disease. Historic, or and well, not even historic, even contemporary. Now we have fear of catching COVID. So if we hear someone sneeze, we move away. We don't want to be close to them. We fear them. And so that, that is where it stems from, this fear of catching contagion or because that person's disability reminds other people of their mortality so that is where it stems from and the question is what do you do with that as human beings you have a right to what you feel but do you have a right to act towards them in anything less than a in a compassionate compassionate way well no you don't you can't control your inner thoughts or your feelings you can control your actions So the legacy of horror, I remember this story, there was this famous, I'm not going to name the editor, but this famous editor in England used to edit this this series of anthologies. And in one of their best of anthologies, the opening story was about this British couple who um, go to, I think it was Greece, right? And the entire story was about how this Greek, uh, these Greek drivers or, I don't know, boatmen uh, they kidnap them and tried to rape the white woman and they 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 tried to kill them. And that was a story, and it was in the best of horror. That that was it. That was what the story was about. These couple of couple of Greeks, you know, uh, uh, trying to abduct this these foreign tourists. And that's fine. I do get it. When you're in a different country, you are especially as we all know in Pakistan and India, you can get mugged, you can be kidnapped, you can be killed. And we know these things happen but the, the 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 fact that this um, entire story was about that and how they were depicted right from the beginning mm-hmm. it, it, you kind of knew that this was coming from a place of xenophobia and racism rather than mm-hmm. you know a genuine respect for a different country and a kind of understanding yeah bad things can happen anywhere in the world well, I think how we uh, people today, horror writers living today, um, de- deal with this legacy is how Victor LaValli, um, I'm sorry, if I'm mispronouncing his name. I think Victor Laval. I think you know, how Victor Laval uh, did this with H.P. Lovecraft. We all know Lovecraft's uh, views on black people, right? So yeah. Victor, who is a black person, a black, a tremendous, tremendous black writer. He wrote um, a a wonderful uh, novella called The Ballad of Black Black Tom, I think, um, which is a subversion and a response to an H.P. Lovecraft story. And Stephen Graham Jones wrote The Only Good Indians, a tremendous book. He just won the Mark Twain Award for that. And uh, the book uh, was Indigenous Peoples' Lived Experience. And the entire book is basically these Native Americans who are in the U.S. and how they live and how they respond and and white people in the story are mentioned like the weather might be, right? I mean, they, they are mentioned as something that is around people, that has affected people, maybe destroyed people, but the book is not about them. The book is about Native Americans having Native American problems with Native American monsters in present contemporary America. Sometimes we can make white people just the backdrop. We've been black backdrop to many, many Kipling stories for a long time, right? So let them be backdrop. Yeah.
0: That's how
1: yeah. We, I think that's how we deal with this. And the best way for me to uh, think about how, I can, how we can tell the stories of displaced people or people with disabilities is bring them into the fold. Let them tell their own stories. Hmm. And when you, and, and I am absolutely pro-sensitivity readers, absolutely. Have, if I'm going to write about a transgender person or a, as we call uh, them hijras in the Indian subcontinent, I would love for a, an actual hijra to read my story, or a transgender person to read my story and tell me what I got wrong and give me an opportunity to fix it.
0: Yeah,
1: We can't tell anyone's story. We can only tell our own stories and just, you know, keep in, I think at the end of the day, it's about respect and compassion how much respect and how much compassion you truly have for the people or your own characters whom you're telling a story about.
0: I think in the contemporary times, you just have to have a lot more diverse voices writing their own stories. And for sure, I guess, having white people in the background is is a very welcome change after so many years of reading um, so many of their stories. (laughs) <laughs> exactly I was reading like your latest I think it's your latest story but beyond these stars other tribulations of love if I'm not uh, wrong I have one other story after that but yes it's, it's a pretty
1: recent story okay
0: um, but I couldn't help but relate to some realities from the global pandemic the responsibility that many of us felt of being caretakers for one's loved ones while the world around you was like literally burning felt extremely real other than being an author you're also a doctor as you mentioned so in a world which is growing increasingly dystopian what do you really think is the scope of fiction especially as a speculative fiction writer what like what goes in your head when the world around you is also kind of replicating that kind of reality
1: someone asked william gibson about the future you know and he said that the future is already here it's just unevenly distributed and you know if you think about it it's so true i i I'm, we are, you and i are talking on this through this uh, um uh, laptop and we've got the internet and we've got this these nice computers and then uh, if you go to california or or silicon valley or wherever you can find you can find robots robot dogs and people are experimenting with them and in 5 years uh, you may even have a robot dog pet, and so these technologies are already here. They're just unevenly distributed. They're clustered in different areas. The, uh, if you think about vaccine inequity as as an example of uh, uh, how the world is, uh, what better example can we have? We we know that the new variants are rising because people are not vaccinated equally, yeah. right? I mean, in 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 India or Bangladesh or Pakistan, wherever. We these variants are rising because uh, the populations are not vaccinated enough. We just don't have enough vaccines for the populations to be vaccinated enough. And while in the West, you have a a hoarding of tremendous vaccines. And you can, I mean, we can argue about this all day long, whether they should or not. But vaccine inequity is going to cause problems for the entire world. And I think that same thing applies to climate change. White people can, you know, or America, the US or the Western nations are the biggest consumers of energy and producers of waste in the world. It is not South Asia that's the largest consumer of energy and the largest uh, producer, you know, uh, with the largest contribution to the carbon footprint. It's not us, it's them. And so while while they have protections around them, while they have the EPA, which is very strong, while they have an entire, America is an entire continent with 330 million people, right? An entire continent... 330 million people. Pakistan is the size, it's smaller than Texas, with 225 million people. Mm. So, you know, that sort of resource limitation, scarcity and density makes a huge difference. And so mm. the, the same things or the same rules that could apply to them will never be able to be applied to us. REP is never going to be that functional. We're still grappling with colonialism from 70 years onward. And now we, of course, we have all other problems as well. So the way I, I think that a lot of us, people think that when we are writing science fiction, we're predicting the future. But I think in a lot of ways, we're addressing and giving answers to the present. And we're, we're really addressing the question of our children's future in uh, keeping in mind our present and looming problems. In the story that you mentioned beyond, uh, you know, these stars, uh, the tribulations, it's a story that I wrote about about a Karachi that is inevitably going to erode away. There is not going to be just like in Florida. There is no Miami is going to be gone. The Keys yeah. in Florida are already pretty much gone. People are uh, finding water in their houses now in the Keys. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon, it's going to be Miami, and then it's going to be the rest of Florida. Similarly, that's going to happen in Karachi. So I think that. Fiction that does not address the elephant in the room is basically, I would say, I would argue that realist fiction, so-called realist fiction that omits climate change, that omits technology is not realist fiction anymore. That is fantasy fiction.
0: Mm.
1: Because our reality is dominated by these elements. Our reality is dominated by these tablets and these screen time issues and screen addictions and people escaping into these metaverses while if anyone is just focusing on a small isolated aspect of the world, great, that's fine. But that is truly escapist fiction.
0: Yeah, all across, like speculative fiction is not very speculative anymore. Everything does seem to be happening at the same time. And I feel like I feel I had a conversation recently with someone and they were pointing out how dystopia is also pretty relative, like for us, maybe as like, at least for me as a privileged person, maybe this is the first time I have to be locked in my house or I don't have the kind of freedom that I used to have a lot. But at the same time, someone from Kashmir has been seen, has been like experiencing this for a lot more longer time or someone from a lower caste or class is experiencing a different kind of trouble, which was, you know, present even before the pandemic came in. So calling anything dystopic is also a real problem. I think everything is kind of relative. But thank you so much for adding that, for sure. And right now, everything that does not address um, the issues that we are facing, politically, climatically, socially, is kind of escapable. But Um, And adding on, we will get Midnight doorways Fables from Pakistan in India pretty soon. Would you like to talk a little about the process of selecting these stories for your anthology and considering the traditional moralistic element associated with fables? Can you tell us why you chose to call it Fables from Pakistan?
1: So, you know, what's interesting is I'm grateful and honored by the fact that Hachette India chose to, you know, bring this book out in India. It's very rare that a book that's published first in Pakistan tends to get picked up by publishers in India. Usually it's the other way around. And so it was, it's kind of a, a little bit of a moment of pride that this book was totally selected, produced, uh, you know, designed, everything was done in Lahore. And as, as I'm sure, you know, the thri- publishing industry in Pakistan is not as thriving, but the publishing industry in Pakistan is, in, in English is very nascent. When you goes to when you go to regional languages, it's a thriving industry. It's a um, brilliantly thriving industry in nascent languages, um, excuse me in native languages. Um, but when it comes to uh, in English, it's a very nascent industry with lots and lots of problems. You can't certainly can't make a living uh, as a writer uh, writing in English in Pakistan unless you're doing other things too. But um, fables from Pakistan, the interesting thing is when Hachette uh, you know um, decided to put this out, they acquired the book and the book was going to be uh, brought out in India. So they reached out to me and they said, we'd like to remove the subtitle Fables mm-hmm. from Pakistan. Fables from oh. Pakistan, because uh, of because, for obvious reasons. They said in our market, mm-hmm. uh, paperback market, Fables from, pa- from Pakistan is going to be a problem. So would you be willing to change the subtitle? And I said, well, how about Midnight Always Fables? i um and i understand why you know the contemporary indian environment is is the way that they don't want uh, the the word pakistan there because of multiple reasons and i get it yeah. but it also and i addressed this in my afterword they asked me to write an afterword to the book and i read i wrote that and said at the end of the book where i talk about this issue and yeah. then in my afterword i argued that The reason for the existence of these stories and for my selection of these stories is precisely the reason they had to remove the subtitle from the cover. And these are fables from Pakistan. Indians should be reading Pakistanis. Pakistanis should be reading Indians. That back and forth of art, that back and forth of everything needs to be an open river. If our, if our land has been separated, that's fine. You know, I mean, we can't keep crying about it 70 years on. But our art, our people, our, our Sikhs, our Hindu, our Muslims, our Dalits, our, whoever, you know, that, that communication between uh, our people of our country, people of this land should never stop. And this idea that there's a blockade in place between post in India and Pakistan. No book from India can come to Pakistan. No mm. book from Pakistan can go to India. That is horrendous. So mm. I, 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 uh, Fables from Pakistan would have been a very useful title in a different time. Maybe in 2010, it would have been a great title. Mm. But currently it's not. It's, it's fallen out of favor using the word Pakistan. Mm. So that's one, two, Fables. A fable, if you look at the word fable, it's not just a story in which animals talk and it is a moralistic lesson. A fable is really a a lie that tells a truth. I chose to define it as an outlandish lie that narrates useful truths. And my stories do two things, I hope. One is they do depict my truth, the truth that I know that I've lived, that I've grown up with, and second, the word "fable" carries with it connotations of all the stories from our part of the world. the stories mm-hmm. that we listened to growing up, the story about the stories from the Mahabharata, the stories from Arabian Nights, the stories from Amir Hamza from Umru Ayyar, all of that so it has that, has that connotations and I think in this in in a region or at least in Pakistan, in a country that 's dominated by realist literature, such fables are important. they set a precedent. For future writers, as to how you could use story to tell different kinds of stories, you don't have to stick to one format or one genre, you can be all over the place. The brilliant writer, Karen Joy Fowler, who wrote the Jane Austen Book Club, mm. and Karen's written, she was a Booker finalist for uh, We Are All Beside Ourselves, again, a realist story uh, novel. All her short fiction is actually fantasy very few people know that karen is a well known name in the fantasy circles mm. so you know or be all be free be go all over explore everything and so you know the, we ended up going with midnight doorways stories which is fine but as long as people read them i don't care what you want to call them
0: i i did not know this fact that they have like removed fables from pakistan also um, it's also pretty interesting that in india the reverse publishing trend is Is dominant? Like we have a lot more English literature dominance than native or like other language literature. I think publicity publicity at least is a lot more for English literature. That's a pretty interesting trend. I don't know why. Do you have any thoughts on why that's reversed here?
1: Well, you know, India has a huge English reading population while Pakistan does not. I think that Historically, Pakistan did not. I will say absolutely that that is changing. I do think mm-hmm. that literacy in Pakistan has gone up quite a bit now compared to what it was. I mean, of course, again, I'm a privileged boy sitting or guy sitting in uh, in you know this posh uh, area of Lahore. You go out mm-hmm. outside Lahore, and the world changes very dramatically. Yeah. And so I can't really speak, but I do think overall, my feeling is that the English reading populations have gone up. When I was a kid. Very few interesting books written uh, by Pakistanis or even books by from other countries. Very few of them as a uh, teenager could I find that I thought were interesting. My reading was int- almost entirely in Urdu till I was in class seven, I think.
0: Um,
1: so I was I was very proficient and good in Urdu. I was a good deep reader. And then I mm-hmm. switched to English around my O-levels and I sort of <laughs> lost most of my Urdu vocabulary. But I think in Pakistan too, let me be very clear, in Pakistan too, while the in, uh, indigenous best literature in Pakistan is still being written in native languages, uh, in, in indigenous languages, in the, in the media, most of the time you'll hear about works in English. Mm-hmm. Only, in Urdu, only in Urdu circles or in Urdu akhbars and Urdu newspapers will you read more about uh, the Urdu phenomena, the new f- uh, phenomenon in Urdu, which is a, mm-hmm. a work.
0: Yeah. yeah. interesting. Thank you for providing that insight. And I would like the last question that I that all the episodes end with is like a couple of recommendations for the listeners. So do you have any books, publications, or even media pieces that you would recommend our listeners to who are on in search of horror or uncanny works?
1: One writer that I always wish that more people knew about is Nair Masood. Um, Nair Masood is one of the, uh, in in my opinion, he may be the best, uh, technically, he may be the best writer of the short story in Urdu, uh, post partition, uh, 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 or post Manto, post the Manto time, Mm. I think he may be the best. Nair Masood is absolutely brilliant. Think about, think of, think of Kelly Link and uh, Kafka. And... Take Kelly Link and Kafka and who else? And maybe Hemingway. Put them all together. So everyone should read Nair Masood. Um, uh, his collection translated into English is the collected works of Nair Masood brought out by Penguin India, actually. Hmm. So that's one writer everyone should read. Um, the other writer, I mean, there's so many good, brilliant writers these days. The writer who wrote uh, Things We Found in the Autopsy. is Khuzali, I think. Yeah, Khuzali Manekavil, Manekavil. Uh, It's Things We Found During the Autopsy. It's a Mm -hmm. short fiction fiction. collection. Kozali Manikavil, I beg their forgiveness if I'm mispronouncing it. But Things We Found During the Autopsy is a wonderful book. Of course, everyone should be reading Vandana Singh and Anil Menon. People Mm -hmm. should be reading Indra Pramit Das. People should be reading Mm -hmm. Jaya Prakash Satya Murthy. People should be reading Vajra Chandra Shekhar. These are brilliant writers. On the Pakistani side, Musharraf Ali Faruqi's work is phenomenal. He, do, he is a scholar and he does a lot of epics. He collects them, he translates them. But we have some really nice, good new writers in speculative fiction. Noor Nasreen Ibrahim, Kerkasha Khalid, and Nihal Jaz Khan are all writers to watch, watch in the next decade or so.